may be seated. You know, I find it, um, I find it very funny, very um, coincidental that in the first week of Advent that we celebrate Christ's incarnation, uh, his coming into human flesh and dwelling among us, that in that story, uh, the angels, the angelic beings, these celestial beings, play a large role in that, and their role is to uplift King Jesus, baby Jesus, to those that they bear witness to. And it just so happens that in the first chapter of Hebrews, we've been talking about, and we'll continue and wrap up talking about, Jesus' superiority and authority and greatness above even angels. And I'll forego the pleasantries and the slick introductions and get straight into the text with you today because we have a lot to unpack here. And I think the Lord has a message for um, all of us, especially in this Christmas season, uh, that I think if we let grip our souls, if we let just resonate with us in our hearts, can really shine a light on who he really is and just how great his gift of the first advent and the second advent will be. Starting in verse 10 of chapter 1, we see it says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. This is just continuing um, the author's argument that Jesus has inherited a name that's much superior to angels. And to do that, he quotes a psalm. He quotes Psalm 102. And what is really interesting about this psalm that he quotes, the context is so key here. Because when it says Lord there, in the original, if you would flip back in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, and see the psalm, you'll see that that Lord is all capital letters, meaning that that is the name of God, Yahweh, in the original language. And what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's identifying Jesus Christ with Yahweh, specifically in his role in creating the universe making him equal in deity with the Spirit and the Father in the Godhead. And what's also interesting you see here, it says, you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Now, if conflating Jesus with Yahweh, with Lord in Psalm 102, wasn't enough, I think the phrase in the beginning is intentionally used and referred to to make your minds think of other places in scripture where it uses that terminology, in the beginning. And I think we'd all think of the first page in our Bible, right? So what he's doing here is he's identifying Jesus with the creation narrative in the beginning of our Bible, in the Genesis. So that when you read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, you would picture Christ himself speaking light into existence, using his words to bring forth the earth, molding Adam from the earth and the dirt and breathing his life into his lungs. Christ, who is upholding the universe 
by the word of his power to this day, as we read in our first week in the study of Hebrews. And it's also the intention, I believe, to hearken to what John chapter 1 says in verses 1 and 2, where it says, in the beginning, again, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You, Lord, you, Yahweh, constant creator, Jesus Christ, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hand. So both the heavens and the earth And everything in between, he goes from focusing on angels and Christ's superiority over them and how he's inherited a a name greater than theirs. And he takes that and he zooms out and says, no, everything you see around you, all of creation, whether the heavens or earth and everything in between, was spoken into existence by the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only is Jesus' work in creation his, his own personal doing, but it's described as a hand-made work. Look at it. The heavens are the work of your hands. This is the same language, that work of your hands, is the same language that's used to describe a potter's hand-molding and intimately crafting his Uh, clay creations in an intimate and involved, specific, intentionally designed way, a nearness, an involved, intimate nature, so that we can see Jesus is implicitly being applied to texts like Isaiah 64, 8 that says, but now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter, we are all the work of your hands. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And after establishing the creator-creation relationship between Jesus and everything else, after establishing his deity, his godness that he proclaims to the universe through his voice speaking life into existence. He goes on to make the point that not only is he the creator to everything, that he has a distinct role in being different, cut apart, holy, that nothing has came, uh, that has not come through him and he has come from nothing, but he also then goes on in verse 11 to use an analogy, to use a simile, a simile to describe the relationship between his eternality, his self-existing forever, and the world's fading away. It says, they will perish, speaking about heavens and the earth, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. We see that everything perishes, but Jesus Christ remains. 
Notice that the opposite, the antithesis of perishes here is not to live. If I were writing this, I would probably say, you know, everything else dies, everything else perishes, but Jesus lives, right? And that would be true and right, but for some reason, the author sees that remain, to remain, to continue, to be steadfast is the opposite of death. He says, instead of perishing, he simply remains who he is. Jesus does not adapt or evolve and change from one form of life to another in order to sustain his existence. This is quite the opposite of our own human flesh and our nature, right? Our ever-changing desires and joys. We are all haunted by this nagging sense of our own mortality. And I think around the holidays that, that tends to hit a little harder because we think about where we were the year before and the year before that. And we get around family members that we haven't seen for quite some time. So we see nieces and nephews and, and, and kids who we thought were still babies, but they're in high school now. And we see this sense of mortality and imminent death that's in all of us when we're reminded life is really short. And there's something in us that stirs in us. And if you don't have the hope of the Lord, you can be haunted by it. It can keep you up at night. It, it may have kept you up. And this is why billionaires such as Jeff Bezos, Yuri Milner, and, and others of the like have recently been investing in startup genetic modification testing corporations like Altos Labs, who's a startup that's trying to be able to make synthetic life and be able to genetically modify our DNA in search of a scientific way to reach immortality. And these billionaires are investing tons of money in what we know is a pipe dream that will never come to pass. But imagine if your only hope was in your wealth and what you had in this world. You would do anything to keep that if you knew you were losing that on the other side. We're all faced with the reality that we will perish, that we will be worn out like a garment. But why are they doing this? Because since the fall, we've all been being worn out. Christ remains. He does not wear out. He is unchanging. He is constant. He is the constant creator. And we are ever-changing creation, ever-dying creation. He goes further, gives the illustration, the world's temporary nature, calls it a garment, a piece of clothing, a cloth. See, subjects, uh, garments are subject to the elements of wear and tear of daily life, right? That's why we cycle through wardrobes. That's why we have to buy new clothes. I wish that I were able to wear the same shirt every day, but I spill food on it, and I wear it out, and I still don't know what the settings on my washing machine mean, so they come out faded and bigger or smaller than they're supposed to be. 
Hopefully I'll learn. But like a garment, our life, it will come to an end. And gradually, we see that happen in our lives. Gradually, over time, we are being worn out. Since the fall of man, sin has infected everything about our lives. Not only has it caused pain, hurt, regret, but the wages for sin is death. And Adam and Eve did not die in the garden when they sinned, but they were promised to die every day. And you can either die to yourself every day, or you can watch yourself as time goes by. We even see it in ourselves as we age is a picture of our life passing before our eyes. It should stir up a sense of urgency to figure out what's on the other side, but instead we distract ourselves. But something about the holiday season, Thanksgiving, Christmas, that takes those distractions aside and makes us think about the eternality of our souls and the temporary nature of this physical self, which is why we like to distract ourselves. But this word is saying that unlike the garment that not only us, but everything, heavens and the earth is, Jesus remains. He never ends. He doesn't even have to change in order to keep up. Like a Jeff Bezos who would have to genetically modify himself, who would have to pour money into it and sustain and try to keep his immortality as long as his pockets are deep enough to do it, Jesus just remains. He just remains. He's unaffected and not subject to changing at all. And continuing in verse 12, we see finally that this garment is identified now as a robe. It's an item of covering. We see it says, like a robe, you, speaking of the Lord, who's being identified as Jesus, you, Jesus, will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. The worn robe is not just left to be worn. It's not just sitting there, but an everlasting remaining Savior takes it and he discards it, indicating not only his own eternality, his self-existence, but his sovereignty over the worn-out, tattered robes that are our lives, that are angels, that are the heavens, and that are this earth. He has superiority, sovereignty over it, and he has every right to roll them up and throw them away. It's fitting that the language is used in Revelation 6.14 to describe the end of the world with the skies also being rolled up in the process. He rolls them up and discards them. And what this text is doing or what it should be doing is piercing your heart with a sense that everything you value will be rolled up and it will be burned if it's not valued in Jesus Christ. 
But in contrast to the changing nature of the world, Jesus stays the same. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. He is constant and unchanging like nothing else is. He's the one who does the rolling up. He will never be rolled up. He will never be conquered, and he stays the same. As Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen. But not only is Jesus not subject to the temporary world that he created, that he spoke it into existence and he'll roll it up by the word of his power one day, including the angels, he comes back. After zooming out, he comes back to the subject at hand, to, to the angels, to the angels. Why? At the beginning of the chapter, he said, you know, and years past that God spoke through prophets, right? Jesus is greater than a prophet. If you thought that maybe he was some angelic being, some Gnostic force that didn't have a, a body like we do that's dwelling among us to teach us, that he was some celestial angel, angelic being, he's greater than that. And to use that same argument that he is greater than the angels, he goes on to quote another psalm, and he says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is the last of five psalms that are quoted in the, just the first chapter alone, and this Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm about a coming Messiah who will come and put all of his enemies under his feet, who will come and redeem the spiritual Israel, and who will come and set the captives free. And this psalm is actually quoted ten times throughout the book of Hebrews due to its emphasis on the Messiah's superiority over all things being applied to angels here. And he asks the rhetorical question, coming back to the main point of verse 4 in chapter 1, that Christ is much superior to angels. But let's pause and consider the weight of that, though. Much superior than angels. Has he ever said to the angels? If you have the modern American idea of angels, then I suspect that that's not impressive at all. There are little naked babies with wings on our Valentine's Day cards, little cherubs, or, or maybe, speaking of the, the Advent season, maybe many of you have been in nativity scene plays where you dressed up in a little white gown with silver wings and a little halo, and, and you're depicted as this sweet, innocent, just powerless creature who comes to spread good, good tidings and cheer then it's not very impressive that Christ is more powerful than that, right? I think I could take one of those angels in a fight, I'm just saying. <laughs> a baby Cupid on a Valentine's Day card doesn't scare me. But that is not the biblical view of angelic beings whatsoever. Um, we see in the uh, Christmas story 
when the angels appeared to the shepherds in the field in Luke 2, 9, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. In reality, we see that when angels show up in the Bible, mere humans fall down in terror. We see it throughout the scriptures. In Isaiah 6, verses 2 through 4, I think we get a good picture of what angelic beings are really like. This is talking specifically of the celestial seraphim. It's the only time they're mentioned in scripture, but they're angelic beings. And it says, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. When angels speak, the foundations of the earth's thresholds shake. So when you read angels here in Hebrews 1, don't think of a chubby, powerless baby with wings on your Valentine's Day card. Think more of a NASA space shuttle launching at takeoff with a thrust of 470,000 pounds of pressurized explosion into the earth that leaves the ground reverberating, shaking for miles around, and you'll get a slight picture of what happens when these angelic celestial beings speak. And yet, even these great seraphim were fearful and reverent around the same throne that Christ is seated next to which is why they covered their feet and their face and they cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make it your enemies, your footstool for your feet? Not only this, this messianic, picture of authority and power given to Christ we see here in being the place of supreme rule and sovereign reign at the Father's hand, but his enemies are promised to be put asunder, his feet at an appointed time in which he sovereignly chooses. And as we go to verse 14, we see that angels, like everything else, these great, high, exalted beings are powerless in his sight and are just servants for his glory. It says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Aren't angels just servants? Has he ever said to the angels, aren't they just ministering spirits? Here the angels' job description is given. They are not top of any food chain, but rather they are meek and humble servants in light of the power and glory of Jesus' name. They are servants to a higher master. 
These ministering spirits are not in charge, but are rather sent out or commissioned by someone far greater. And on behalf of their master, Jesus, who are they sent to? Who are they sent to? Sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. We see here that these exalted heavenly beings are simply portrayed as just mere messengers and ministers from Christ to Christ's people. There are three ways in which angels are portrayed in the Bible as servicing God's people, and I think they all apply here. Uh, the first is that their role through history um, of giving messages, being divine messengers from God to his people. Think of the Christmas story, right? Think of Gabriel, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds in the field, the three wise men, or just wise men. Um, or you can see them uh, fighting unseen spiritual battles, engaging in spiritual warfare that we can't see on our behalf. We see this alluded to in Matthew 18, where it says, See, do not despise one of the little ones, for I tell you uh, that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father. Think of Michael, the archangel, who was coming to minister to Daniel, but said that he was fighting the prince of Persia, whatever that means, in the spiritual realm for 21 days before he was able to get there to Daniel, there's a sense in which this could mean the unseen spiritual mysterious battles that we don't see, and thank goodness we don't see them in these unglorified bodies. But I think the third meaning of how angels are seen as serving the church, serving God's people, is probably the most important and the most likely what the author means here. The most likely interpretation of them serving those who are called to inherit salvation is referring to the angelic host's role in bringing judgment or redemption to the world as they descend with Christ in his second coming to bring ultimate salvation in glory to come for his church. We see this in Matthew 16, 27, as it says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory, in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done which is the day that he'll roll up the skies, roll up all of heaven and earth, and discard it, change it for something new. Rolling it up like the tattered garment it is, and bringing his church to a free inheritance of perfect relationship with him, untethered by the cares of this transient, ever-changing, slowly perishing world. Which brings us back to those worn out garments and the message the angels were bringing all along. Because angel means messenger. The word garment in verse 11 that's, that's being worn out. The garments of this world, this physical creation, it's identified in verse 12 as a robe. A robe. Like a robe you roll them up. Like a garment, 
they will be changed. And I think that's completely intentional to provide a subtle reminder that the covering garment, the covering robe of this temporary world is worn, dirty, unclean, and insufficient compared to that of Christ's whitest snow robes of righteousness. A lot of us have lived a long time putting a lot of value in our own robes of righteousness, not even recognizing how worn out they've been, not even recognizing how much our righteousness pales in comparison. We are all plagued by the same thing the angels are plagued by, by the same things the heavens and the earth are plagued by, and that is we are slowly but surely perishing. Actually, it's not slow at all. It seems slow to us because we're living it now. But the days of man are like a breath. All is vanity under the sun. The scriptures describe the life of man as being like the, the dew on grass. We've heard the expression before, oh, it's here today, gone tomorrow. But if you think about the dew when you wake up in the morning, it's there in the morning, gone later that morning. And that's what the Bible says about your life. Your life is quickly perishing, quickly being worn out quickly fading away, and your robes are dirty. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all will be accounted on judgment day when he comes back with his angels, who will be coming to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. The Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will repay each person according to what he has done. That's the general rule. But for those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the message of the angelic messengers, the message of scripture is that we've all fallen short of the glory of God and that even our righteousness, even the good things we do, even the robes we are so proud of, the book of Isaiah say, are filthy rags because we have this sin nature that even when we wrap up our wounds of this sickness, this sinful leprosy with white rags, with white robes, our sickness is so impure that it bleeds through and we offer that to God as our robe. God, see my pretty robe, my wearing out, my infected righteousness and we think that'll save us. Or we could submit to the God, Jesus Christ, the constant creator, the Messiah, the Emmanuel, the God with us who paid for our sins. We could believe that he died on our behalf, that he came down and died out of his own volition that he laid down his own life, no one took it from him, that he went to the cross, 
took the wrath that we deserved on our behalf, was buried for three days, resurrected, proving that he was who he said he was, and ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, just waiting until he decides to come back. And you can either be one of the enemies for under his feet at his footstool, which the scriptures say, without God, we are all at enmity with him, that no one does good, no, not one. Or you can believe in the gospel, the good news, the message the angelic hosts were created for. You can believe it, be changed. Don't trust in the worn out rags and robes of this world, but trust in the white as snow robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ.